Shall we pray? Dear Lord, help us to hear when you speak to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'm very grateful for the invitation to share some thoughts with you. This will be a topical rather than a Bible study. And I'd like to consider the topic of courage. Now, I would be the first person to admit that I'm no expert on courage, neither in theory nor in practice. Uh, and I think, uh, as someone said to, what is it, the, yes, minister, uh, that's a courageous choice. Um, so why choose to talk about this topic? Well, actually, I feel that the topic sort of chose me. Let me try and explain. I had been reading a number of things, uh, things about progressive ideologies, identity politics, critical social justice theory. Um, And I I also was reminded when I revisited a book about the early Bible translators, John Wycliffe and William Tyndale. And I also happened to read The Heroes of Faith in Hebrews 11 and The Prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel. And I felt that from all these different directions, the message came through to me about the importance of courage. Courage to stand against the flow of societal pressures. Courage to pursue Bible translation, knowing that it could be your death warrant. Courage to remain faithful in the face of persecution. And I was marvelling at this convergence of stories involving courage And the fact that I don't ever remember having heard a sermon on courage. Um, It was like when you buy a new model car. You haven't noticed them before, but all of a sudden you see them everywhere. And I was seeing courage as an important issue everywhere. And it was at that point that Tim asked me, would you like to give a couple of topical sermons? So should I take that as guidance, coincidence, Or maybe it's just a good, important subject that we all talk about. So I'm not an expert, and I don't think you should assume that this is some settled theology of the Anglican Church of Australia. It's not. It's my exploration rather than an exposition. And it may well raise more questions than it answers, and I'm looking forward to learning from your feedback afterwards. I've arbitrarily split the subject into two, talking about courageous leaders this week and what it means personally to be courageous next week. And it's probably worth bearing in mind that since attending the Oxford Summer School uh, in 2019, uh, put on by the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics, I'm even more keen to think about the relevance of my faith to the world in which I live. I want to be able to talk about my faith in a way that someone who is not a Christian will understand, even if they don't agree. I think courage is important for and even essential for Christians. So at the Last Supper, Jesus said to his followers, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart or be of good courage, I have overcome the world. And C.S. Lewis, in the Screwtape Letters, wrote, Courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point, 
which means at the point of highest reality. And the Greek philosopher Aristotle said, courage is the first of human qualities because it is the quality which guarantees the others. So courage is important for Christians, but it's not unique to Christians. Uh, There are a number of uh, movements today pressuring people to accede to some dominant narrative. It goes under various titles such as progressive ideology, identity politics, critical social justice. They claim to promote social justice, but they cloak coercion in the name of compassion. They claim that if you don't agree with them, people will get hurt and some will even commit suicide. So it takes courage to stand against the flow and risk being targeted, especially on social media. It is a process which is called being cancelled, which can even lead to you losing your job. So I've come to respect or even admire people who have the courage to stand against the flow, even if I don't agree with them. And I would like to consider some contemporary examples of contentious issues and the people who have stood against the dominant narrative. In fact, this is sort of one of the things that got me started on this topic in the first place. And please note, I'm not trying to push any particular position But these are areas of concern to me as a Christian and also because I see them impacting either directly or indirectly our children and grandchildren. I'll mention a number of books um, which consider these issues. This is not to show off the things that I've been reading but more by way of providing you with footnotes Uh, on sources that I have used and which you may wish or may not wish to pursue. I suppose it comes from my academic training of giving credit where credit is due. Perhaps the most contentious issue nowadays is the transgender issue. It's a significant one nowadays and there seem to be three or four basic groupings. There are children who have experienced gender dysphoria or discomfort with their bodies from an early age, even from two or three. Um, And that's usually boys and they usually grow out of it. There is what has become known as rapid onset gender dysphoria, which seems to be a social contagion amongst adolescent girls, prompted by social media where you can get a number of girls, even in the same class, deciding all of a sudden that they have gender dysphoria. And the third group is those activists who claim that if a man identifies as a woman, then he is a woman. And there is a fourth group, which is normal transgender adults who live productive lives um, and are not caught up trying to sell this to other people. So the first book that I looked at was by Abigail Schreier called Irreversible Damage. Uh, This presents a number of case studies of girls that have um, experienced this, uh, caught up in this transgender craze in the United States. They were persuaded by social media and social media influencers that their discomfort and negative emotions as adolescents 
was due to gender dysphoria and that transitioning would solve their problem. Their schools encouraged them to change their name and their preferred pronouns, so rather than being referred to as she and her, to be referred to as he and his. And this was hidden from the parents. The medical fraternity has been persuaded or constrained to adopt affirmative care, which means that they accept the patient's self-diagnosis largely without question. In what other area, I wonder, is that the case, especially mental or psychological issues, that a doctor is ex expected to accept the patient's self-diagnosis. Medical intervention can lead down the path of puberty blockers, hormone treatment and even surgery. The girls will probably end up infertile. And you wonder, how can an adolescent girl decide that, that this is what they want to do and really ignore what's going to happen when they grow up into adulthood? As Abigail Schreier points out, it is a case of irreversible damage. For a few, it works. For others, it is a painful experience that does not resolve their underlying negative emotions. And for others, they realise they've made a terrible mistake and detransition. Some jurisdictions around the world, particularly in the United States and Canada, have legislated against what they call conversion therapy which is really any attempt to dissuade a girl from following the path that they think they ought to be going on. Jordan Peterson, the Canadian psychiatrist, says that negative emotions are common for adolescent girls and he would take at least six months of counselling to determine what actually was the issue for the girl and how should it be treated. There are a few detransitioners who are suing the medical fraternity for inadequate care, and in the Netherlands and Scandinavian countries are retreating from affirmative care. The large Tavistock Clinic in London has apparently closed, uh, but the Melbourne Children's Hospital is continuing on. So Abigail Schreier was one of the first in 2020 to draw this to people's attention, so it's a very recent thing. And it was at great personal cost. She had trouble getting her put, book published and even advertised. A second book, uh, which covers similar issues, is by Helen Joyce, titled Trans. Uh, it's a more extensive coverage of the transgender movement, the history of transgender, going back to the early days, and this more recent thing of transgender identification. This is those who claim that a man can identify as a woman and then gain access to female change rooms, being housed in female prisons and being able to compete in female sports. So in the US you have the situation that some girls have trained long and hard to uh, succeed in college swimming only to be upstaged by a fairly average male swimmer who now claims that he is a woman. Helen Joyce stresses the need for people to push back against this invasion of women's spaces. She points out that transgender identification is an attempt to deny biological essentialism. 
In other words, that our biological sex is fundamental to who we are. And this is not just an overseas issue. Holly Lawford-Smith is a professor of philosophy at the University of Melbourne and has been targeted recently for asserting biological essentialism, which is also defended by J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter books, and Martina Navratilova, the tennis player. And uh, Helen Joyce says she has never received so much vitriol as she did in response to her book. A different issue uh, is raised by Katie Faust and Stacey Manning in their book, Them Before Us. They point out that in an age of in vitro fertilisation, donor sperm and donor eggs, which can be chosen from a catalogue depending on the desirable characteristics you are after, and even surrogacy, the normal means of procreation with a man and a woman, is no longer required. Pretty much anyone who wants a child and has sufficient funds can have one. Katie Faust and Stacey Manning suggest that this is a commodification of children. And they ask, what about the rights of the child? If children thrive best in a stable family with biological parents, shouldn't that be the goal? Surely the rights of children should take priority over the desires of adults. After all, if you wish to adopt a child, you have to submit to a rigorous evaluation process. Another hot topic, especially in the United States, is racism. And John McWhorter, who is a black or Negro academic, if you're allowed to describe someone like that nowadays, um, he claims that the way to understand racism in the US is as a religion. He is no friend of religion, so some of his analogies are rather uncomfortable. He says that he claims that the leaders or thought leaders in this movement act as priests. And so he takes issue, for example, with Ibram Kendi, who claims that you can either be racist or anti-racist. It is not an option to be simply not racist. Similarly, Robin DiAngelo argues that if a white person is uh, called racist and they object, that simply means that this is a form of white fragility and that can be taken as evidence of their racism. So if you're right, if you're white, you're racist. She also famously ran a training session at Coca-Cola in February 2021 where she urged the staff members to try to be less white. Again, John McWhorter was targeted for promoting this view of the anti-racism movement. And finally, I'd like to mention this book by Garth Paltridge titled The Climate Caper. I don't think Garth Paltridge is very well known, but I knew him at the University of Tasmania. He was the head of the Institute of Antarctic and Southern Ocean Studies um, and he had to appear on science, at science faculty meetings like I did. Uh, he was an atmospheric scientist, one of several climate scientists who disagreed with the climate consensus and the climate catastrophism which is based on the idea that humans are responsible for climate change. His book considers the physics of climate, the computer models used to predict future climate, the economics of 
addressing climate change and, of course, the politics. He states that from an early stage he had doubts or concerns about the climate consensus, but he was told to keep quiet or he would not receive funding for his institute from CSIRO. And it was only in his retirement that he feels that he can share his concerns. He also points out that Brian Tucker, who was chief of CSIRO's Division of Atmospheric Research and a specialist in numerical climate modelling, it was only on his retirement that he felt he could speak about his worries and take a very public stance against many of the scientific sacred cows of the global warming establishment. So there are two scientists who did not feel they could share their concerns about the climate consensus before their retirement. Maybe you could say, well, they weren't courageous enough. Now, please note, I'm not raising these to say this is the opinion you ought to adopt. I'm raising them because it shows that some people have to be courageous to stand against the prevailing dogma. It takes courage and there is a cost involved. All of these people suffered significant backlash for going against the flow. But the first person, but once the first person has spoken out, others find it easier. Some of these, like Stacey, uh, Katie Faust and Stacey Manning, are Christians, but they prefer to argue the case based on shared humanity. Some of them are not Christians but seem to be sympathetic to Christian values or at least the truth as they see it. They are all people speaking out in the name of what they believe is right and I think we owe them a debt. Let me now turn to more familiar ground and think about our Bible readings. In our first Bible reading we, we heard about Elijah and Obadiah. Elijah seems to be such a towering figure. He was a prophet in the time of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Ahab was weak, so when he wanted to buy Naboth's vineyard and Naboth refused, Ahab sulked. Jezebel was strong, so she arranged for Naboth's murder and then handed the vineyard to Ahab. You can read about that in 1 Kings 21. Their marriage was a political arrangement, as many were, and Jezebel brought with her the worship of Baal. She set about trying to kill off the prophets of Yahweh. And among other things, Baal was a prophet of the god of rain. So when Elijah turns up and says, there's going to be a drought until I say so, he was throwing down the gauntlet to Baal. And similarly, he challenges the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Each group had their own sacrifice and the challenge was to get their, their God to light the fire or the barbecue, if you like. Um, and, and yet uh, Elijah was very human. So he was overcome when the widow's son dies, the widow with whom he was staying during the drought, and uh, so he prayed fervently to God, and God restored the, the boy. And uh, after the high of Mount Carmel, and with Jezebel's unrelenting opposition, um, Elijah drifted into depression, as we heard a few weeks ago. 
But it, and also in the New Testament, we are told that Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Obadiah, on the other hand, seems to be much more at our level. He was a palace administrator, a high position at the centre of government. He was a devout believer who, did, who hid a hundred prophets from the Queen's persecution. And it's amazing to think how he might have done this. I mean, did he just skip siesta every day and go off to feed them? Or maybe he knocked off early each day? I don't know. Uh, and I suspect, I think Ahab suspected what was going on, but maybe he preferred not to know what was happening. And at this time, there were two searches going on, uh, one for Elijah um, and one for grass. And Ahab at least knew better than to send Obadiah looking for Elijah. And he was undoubtedly courageous to go against the royal policy because of his faith. And certainly if Jezebel found out, he and the hundred prophets would undoubtedly be killed. In our second Bible reading, we learnt about Paul and Ananias. Again, Paul seems to be such a towering figure. As Saul, he persecuted the early church in an attempt to nip in the bud this new religious sect. On the way to Damascus, he had a blinding vision of the risen Jesus. And Jesus was going to commission him as apostle to the Gentiles. Paul would use his great learning to promote the gospel and he would have to suffer much for the cause of Christ. And again, Ananias seems to be someone much more at our level. A humble Christian who was commissioned to, hear, to heal Saul and welcome him into the church. And he was understandably somewhat dubious about this. Uh, and he says to God, look, are you sure you've got the right guy, the right street? Are you sure it's the house of Judas we're talking about? Um, and God says, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he has to suffer for my name. And of course, there are examples of courageous leadership through the years. Uh, let me skip over Polycarp, although that's worth looking at. And let me look at... Uh, a couple of Bible translators, early Bible translators, who impressed me as I read about them. John Wycliffe and William Tyndale. Um, better use the right page. Um, John Wycliffe was labelled a heretic for replacing the authority of the Pope by the authority of God's word. He was one of the greatest scholars of his time and his followers began translating the Bible into English so people could read God's word for themselves and discover the truth. His translation was copied by hand, this is before the printing press, and studied, and it exposed many of the deceptions that lay at the root of the church's claim to power. He thus initiated a reform movement which impacted Luther a century later and subsequently William Tyndale. Tyndale was another scholar who resisted the church hierarchy in translating the Bible into English. Famously, it was said, when Tyndale first announced his resolve to make the word of God available to the masses, a priest advised him that we were better 
we were better be without God's law than the Pope's. And Tyndale retorted, If God spare my life in many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plough shall know more of the scriptures than thou dost. Initially he sought support from Bishop Tunstall of London, who had earlier helped Erasmus with a Latin translation, but Tunstall and others opposed a translation into English. And so without support in England, Tyndale escaped to Europe to produce the translation and have it printed. He was a hunted man, and yet he persisted in his endeavour. Eventually he was caught and burnt at the stake. I don't know, there's a, a couple of videos on SBS, if you, they're still there, about the life of William Tyndale, which are really worth reading. So these are just some examples of people of courage, biblical Christian, who showed courage in leadership. And they're part of our Christian ancestry. And as uh, the writer of Hebrews says, what more shall we say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies." I think we're in a time where courage is in high demand for resisting progressive ideologies. And we are in debt to leaders of courage and especially our godly heritage for so many amazing precedents. And I think it falls to us to support them as best we can, being prepared to support them in speaking publicly and certainly in supporting them in fervent prayer. Next time, I'd like to think about what it means to have personal courage. But now let us pray. We thank you, Lord, for those people, leaders of courage, who have been prepared to speak out at great personal cost for what they believe is right. We also thank you for your many courageous servants, both in the past and in the present, who stay faithful to you, even to the point of death. Amen.